Welcome to Decoding Superhuman. This show is a deep dive into obsessions with health, performance, and how to elevate the human experience. I explore the latest tools, science, and technology with experts in various fields of human optimization. This is your host, Boomer Anderson. Enjoy the journey. Today on the show, we're going to welcome my friend, Angela Foster. Angela is a nutritionist and executive health and performance coach. She's the host of the High Performance Health Podcast, which yours truly has been on before. And it's a show where she talks about how to break through limits and achieve a high performance mind, body, and lifestyle. Angela works with high-performing clients, including top CEOs, entrepreneurs, and executives. And if that weren't enough, she's also the founder and CEO of My DNA Edge and the Angela Foster Academy, which is an exclusive private membership. So today on the show, Angela and I discuss her previous background in corporate law and what that really did to her health. She then opens up and starts to talk a lot about her experience with depression. And I really appreciate uh, her willingness to talk about this so openly. And so we go deep into that and how Angela actually beat depression and how she now uses that experience, if you will, to help serve other high performers in the world. The show notes for this one are decodingsuperhuman.com slash Angela. Enjoy my conversation with Angela Foster. I don't know when you're listening to this, but we're recording around the holiday season. And around this time of year, people look to buy gifts, of course, last minute. And what better gift to buy than a new body for somebody? But that's not really practical, but you can give them the tools to do it. And one of my favorite tools that I've discovered this year is the Be Strong. The Be Strong blood flow restriction training system is just simply epic. It goes with me everywhere, really everywhere. It's in my GORUCK GR1 bag every day. And I carry it with me because it allows me to get an effective workout in 20 minutes time. I've brought it on planes. I've brought it to hotels. I keep it at home, as I mentioned. And I find it to be very, very effective. Actually, the best device for the amount of time spent. And so if you want yours, go to bestrong.training and use the code BOOMER for 10% off. And let me know what you think of it. Angela, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on, Boomer. It's great to be here. You know, I've had a pleasure of really just exchanging conversations with you over the past couple of weeks. And I know uh, we have different industry backgrounds, but similar stories in a way. And so if I have this correct and my research is correct, you worked in corporate law, is that right? That's right. Yeah, I did. Okay. So when we start talking about law on this show or uh, banking, finance, et cetera, uh, I would love to hear just sort of what that was like for you, the the type of environment, because there's a lot of people listening to the show that probably are in corporate law um, and just sort of the environment and, you know, what eventually led you to, to leaving corporate law. But let's first start with, you know, how you got into it and what that environment looked like for you. Yeah, so the environment was, I mean, busy, 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 right? It was very, very long hours and very high demands. I was working on one of the the biggest law firms in London on multinational deals. And it was, how did I get into it? It was the excitement. It's funny, actually, Mm -hmm. I was originally going to be a, when I was doing my training, I first of all wanted to be a defamation lawyer. And that Mm -hmm. was exciting in the litigation. And then my final seat was corporate law. And uh, 
I don't know, there was something sexy about corporate law, if you, if you can term it yeah. like that, I guess. And it was fun. And I enjoyed the buzz and the kind of the cut and the thrust of it and putting the deals together. And also just around the people, they're really high energy um, lawyers, you know, they work hard and play hard. So it was a lot of fun. Um, and then I think for me, what it, it what it meant was it becomes a lifestyle. That's the only way I can describe law. It just it's all encompassing. And I think for I enjoyed it for many years, you know, when I was in my 20s and you kind of all my friends were lawyers and we had a great time, really enjoyed the deals. And then I actually moved in house for a bit. I was on a secondment to an investment bank. So I think mm-hmm. you were saying Ooh. you were in banking. So I went yeah. there. So yeah, out of the uh, saucepan into the fire. And uh, mm-hmm. that again was different. It was fun. I was working with the trading floor. But initially, actually, the hours were a little bit better. And I was thinking, well, this this looks quite good. You know, the in-house game, perhaps that's what I'll do. But then actually, um, very quickly, it just turned into more of the same. And it got mm-hmm. to the point where I felt it was overtaking my life. And I think as women do, they want to try and combine what they're doing with a family. And so then at that point, I looked at, well, actually, I think private practices for me, I wanted to make partnership. It was like a, you know, a goal of mine that I'd had, but I moved to a larger firm that had a London base, but was based outside, predominantly outside of London, just to see Mm. if I could kind of combine and marry those two worlds, which in the city, I didn't see many women doing, or at least they weren't seeing their family if they were. And uh, so I then sort of made partnership when I was about, I was eight months pregnant, crazily. Wow. Um, It was a busy year. Yeah, it was a busy year. Um, And the thing is, I think I then took a career break. Initially, that's what it was, because I had both of my two boys very close Mm -hmm. together. So I think actually I was three months pregnant when I was due to go back on go back from maternity leave. So that was all quite fast. And I thought, well, actually, I'm going to take some time out. I spoke with, you know, headhunts and things. Does it matter if you take? And they were like, anything up to sort of 18 months is probably fine. Um, and then as I came away from law, I I kind of had my own battles, which we can get into if you want to mm-hmm. in terms of yeah. burnout and postnatal depression. And I ultimately then just, it led to a very big life change in me and a complete switch um, in the end. So let's, uh, I want to just unpack some of this for people to, to kind of set the background because, you know, some people aren't necessarily familiar with what long hours means, right? And so they may think that anything greater than an eight hour day. Um, and, you know, I'm just curious because I, I know what London can be like in terms of the the attitudes towards work hours. I also know what multinational deals can be like. Uh, uh, you know, what would you say sort of an average day looked like in terms of working hours or average week, if you will? So an average week would be mostly 12 to 14 hour days Mm -hmm. and and up. Um, I think that often weekends included, you know, there was always the hospital pass, particularly in the, when I was more junior that get thrown on your desk at four o'clock on a Friday afternoon. Oh, I love those. (laughs) Yeah. You knew that was a whole weekend of work, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, sometimes, you know, I'd be waiting for things with, you know, the, the, the team, the secretary and people to turn things around and we'd go out come back to work and then work through. I think, you know, I've done some crazy things like 3am workouts in the gym 
waiting Ooh, for the, the overnight. Do you remember those? Yeah. They don't feel good. I think you only try that a few times, but it's a way yeah. of staying awake, I guess. So mm-hmm. for me, I think the worst stint I ever did was actually when I was doing, I was working on the merger of Hewlett Packard with Compact Computers. And Ooh. that was between California, London and India. And that was very <laughs> And I think we did something like 85 hours with an hour and a half sleep. And that was literally just to kind of nap and then came back. And what I found was the floor didn't even stay still at that point. Mm -hmm. By the end of that, you know, when I came through the other side of that, I just felt like I'd almost gone into a coma. Mm -hmm. Um, I was so exhausted. So, yeah, the hours were very long, very Mm. demanding. And it's funny because I think I still occasionally have a dream today where I wake up and I, I feel like I haven't charged enough chargeable hours. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's definitely mm-hmm. a pressure as a lawyer. <laughs> so billable hours are, are certainly a thing to to consider here. Now, along the way, I, I'm just curious because when you get into a position like that and you start to do more than what your body is really built for, what are you using to compensate if you're willing to share? Because I know for me, for instance, like I was a big, big caffeine user um, mm-hmm. for sure um, until I figured out what nootropics were. Um, but, you know, I was ne- not necessarily using the nootropics in the right way. But for you, were there particular things that you would turn to or did you find sort of the the magic bullet through exercise? exercise so this obviously I knew nothing at this point of biohacking nootropics anything like that so as a lawyer I was I was pretty healthy and I would but I was exercising I would say probably too much and I think that almost then even further warmed up the stage for the burnout that was to come because so hit workouts definitely I would you know we, we as lawyers we never really got started um until about 9 30 10 so it was always late nights and so I was very much I've always been that early morning chronotype so I would mm-hmm. classically be up at 6 a.m either running into work or cycling then going to the gym and you know, kind of pumping myself up, caffeine a little bit. I'm I never really overused. I used it definitely for sure, and I guess it was too much for my um, for my adrenal function in a way. But I don't think that I was surviving on coffee at night. I certainly was during the day, but I used exercise for the extra pump. And that, like yeah. I was saying, you know, working out at two a.m. crazy kind of things. Yeah. Um, but I don't think in my 20s, I think you get away with it. That's the yeah, thing. Yeah, in your, in your 20s, you do, right? It's mm. just like maybe, and look, work hard, play hard, right? Like maybe at that point, I would get worse hangovers or something. But that was really about it. What were some of the sort of cracks in the armor, if you will, that you started to see yeah. uh, before you took the 18-month sabbatical? So that's a great question. So for me, what took a hit was my, and this is ultimately what led to my demise is really, is my, I got repeated respiratory infections. Mm -hmm. So I'd always had a background of that as um, growing up as a teenager. And the question came later um, after I'd had pneumonia, you know, do I have, did I always have asthma and it was undiagnosed 
Or why was I getting these affections? Was I just pushing? Because even when I wasn't pushing myself that hard, like at school, I was getting these. But that definitely what kept happening. So it was repeated chest infections and laryngitis every time I pushed myself. Then I would have a bit of time off, recover, come back, and then just push again. And that kept happening. And they progressively got worse. So, you know, initially it's... And the problem with that is, as you know, is it leads to causes of antibiotics because you need them to, to cure it. And so I had... And then it sort of moved into maybe a bit more higher grade infections things like bronchitis and pleurisy Mm -hmm. until eventually then i you know eventually was hospitalized with pneumonia wow wow Mm. and so when you went and had your your two boys uh you decided to take some time off and that was really when uh, when you sort of took a little bit of a break things started to you started to realize what was under the surface was going on and you mentioned something earlier around uh, both burnout, but also depression. And I would love to go into that if you're willing to share. Sure, sure, sure. So with, um, I mean, we can choose choose the path uh, you want to go down. Did one lead to the other or was it more sort of a combination of the two? So that's interesting. Um, I think that having now done the research and everything, um, myself and really dived into this I think that I was exhausted by the time that I had my children Mm -hmm. and that really made me a lot more vulnerable to the postnatal depression but I also think part of it was the attitude that had become a part of me really um, in terms of never feeling like I couldn't do anything I took too much on so for example like we had this thing at the law firm where it was always grace under fire. So no matter what challenge was presented, you had to be able to cope with it. And that was part of being, being able to become a partner, right? You had to demonstrate that resilience. Mm -hmm. So when I had my children, I remember the midwives and the people that would visit saying, you know, you've just got to take a step back and get some sleep. And I was like, no, I've done all nighters. It doesn't matter. And I was continuing on and not taking naps and not actually really giving my body a rest. But I think I was kind of fighting, I would say the depression, they came together. I was fighting this this secret battle. And at first, I really wasn't willing to accept that I had postnatal depression. That was something that was never going to happen to me. Mm -hmm. I didn't identify with it. So for me, it and and I think this is true for a lot of people, depression is very, very physical. Mm -hmm. And it comes as exhaustion. And so I was looking at other things. First of all, it was like, well, I must have iron deficiency, right? I've had that before. Mm. So that could be what it is this time. That's why I can't get out of bed. Um, and it, it's taken a long way for me as somebody who felt so in control of their mind Mm -hmm. to really explore and dig deep and, and do that work to actually come through the other side of it. So I think they probably both came together and each one exacerbated the other. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we haven't really, we talked quite a bit on this show about anxiety, a little bit less on d- depression. Um, how common is postnatal depression? And then uh, if you don't mind just going through some of what that felt like for people. Sure. So I think it's very common. I think what differentiates it is the 
degree to which you have it. So I think for some women, and I think it's kind of trying to understand the difference between your hormones are all over the place, Mm -hmm. 100%. When you've just had a baby, they're all over the place. And then it's understanding, is this this a short-term thing that actually I'm going to get past? So obviously the first thing is the baby blues, which are very... Very extreme. You're very tearful and that happens kind of day three, four, when sort of the milk comes in. It's it's That's very unique and that passes for most people. Some women then do struggle with that new adaptation, the new life, and they can experience depression. Um, with me, it became more and more entrenched over time. Mm-hmm. And so it then, I was diagnosed with, you know, uh, clinical depression that was chronic depressive disorder and potentially tripping into bipolar. Mm. So whether that, and I, if I look back in all honesty, I did struggle. I think I've always struggled my whole life, but I don't think I ever identified it as depression. Mm-hmm. So for me, it's hard to distinguish whether it was just postnatal or that was an event that triggered it and brought it on. Mm-hmm. Um, because the more I've learned and the more I understand now how it works and and what those thoughts are and how to cope with them, the more I can identify that some of these things were there long before I had children. Mm-hmm. And what did some of those thoughts look like? I obviously want to hear the the back end of the story, which because you made a lot of a lot of progress here. But uh, mm. what did some of those that day to day look like when you were going through uh, the postnatal depression? So the first thing that happened for me um, when I was experiencing it, and it was the same each time, is an inability to sleep. Mm -hmm. So an inability to settle my mind. And it was almost like a kind of computer scrambling program. There was just heightened activity in my mind. Um, And that then would be followed with, I guess, very negative thought patterns um, and very feeling. But there was... And I think this is the hardest thing. I don't know if if there are women listening that may identify with this. The hardest part for me was there was a degree of self-loathing that came with it or a degree of feeling that in some way I would be freeing people if I wasn't there, freeing my children, which it sounds crazy for me. And and, um, to listen to that, to listen to myself saying it now, but it becomes so... um, so painful to be exist to be to exist so painful to be with your own company and your own thoughts that you ultimately just i found for me i can't speak for other people i just wanted to turn them off mm-hmm. and that's when i think that's when it starts to be the suicidal thoughts become more prevalent mm-hmm. and i know that people can feel depressed or down without getting to that stage so there may be for different people it may be different and varying degrees but certainly for me it then turned into something where I just wanted to turn my head off Mm -hmm. Um, in the morning I couldn't get going so with as I had it repeat and it becomes more entrenched so it was triggered each time once I'd had a baby Um, and I adored my children, don't get me wrong. I completely fell in love with those babies the moment they were born. And I feel so fortunate for that because I think some women can't connect with their babies. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel genuinely heartfelt emotion for those women because I think that must make it even harder. For me, that wasn't the issue. I felt that um, somehow I shouldn't be here. or and, and it used to take my eldest, you know, a good hour and a half to get mummy out of bed in the morning and just of arm pulling. And it was so physical. I, I didn't know what time it was most of the time. Mm -hmm. 
um, whether it was night or day, if the sun shone, you know, most people get a serotonin boost when the sun's shining, they feel happy, it makes them smile. Every day is like, every day is dark mm-hmm. cloud in your head. And and then it takes on a very physical form as well. Thank you for sharing that. It's, um, I really appreciate you being so open about it. At some point you, you entered into sort of the, the pattern interrupt though. And what made you say like, Hey, I got to do something about this. And how did you begin that process? So the first, the first time, um, I didn't get any help after my first child. Mm -hmm. And then I went straight into the pregnancy, which was quite quick with my second. Mm -hmm. And I felt really quite depressed all the way through that pregnancy. And it was, was, it was a struggle. And then when my son was born, they talk often with postnatal that there's kind of a trigger point around eight weeks and again at eight months. And that was definitely how it kind of struck for me. And when my second child was eight months old, um, my husband took some time off and I then had somebody to sort of take care of the kids. So this need to actually get out of bed. My husband was like you in in finance. He is an investment banker. Mm -hmm. And so he was working long hours. He wasn't there. So I felt very alone. And he took a week off and I just could not get out of bed. Mm -hmm. So I, at this point, still was in total denial and believed. I knew what was going on, but I didn't want to. So I thought there must be something wrong. So I called my doctor and said, you know, I think we need to run some bloods. I, I just... I can't get dressed till three o'clock in the afternoon. This is not me. Um, I think maybe I'm anemic again. And she obviously had seen it repeated times and said, look, we'll run some tests, but I just want to put it out there. You know, this is, could be what it is. And then um, the test came back fine. So I then ignored it until I got to the point where I think I was struggling with my own thoughts so much that I went to see um, a GP that I was thankfully I was closer to and he just somehow had a way of talking to me that I could trust. I think that's the biggest thing. And I didn't want any medication. I just wanted to speak to somebody. Mm-hmm. And he sort of left the room because I was answering a series of questionnaires, which is what they get to do initially. And I was trying to answer them. I wasn't being honest with them. So he left the room and came back. And then he said to me, the reason I left is I just knew you were never going to be honest. There was always going to be a brave face if I was in the room. Mm-hmm. And then I was kind of shaking and he 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 pleaded with me and said, can I please really let me treat you? And I just, at this point, it was so physical. I couldn't, I was like this. I couldn't even hold myself. Mm-hmm. Uh, just the pain inside was so great. And so he, um, I agreed really reluctantly at that point to take some medication so I took the medication and then uh, it worked a little bit. Then I had a big crash a couple of months mm-hmm. later around Christmas time. And then they needed to increase the dose. And I then went to see a series of uh, psychotherapists. Um, I I kind of, I, I had various ones over the years to really help me. Um, and I started to do a lot of work on myself. So understanding that my thoughts were not me. I didn't, mm-hmm. I'd never made that distinction before, right? I just thought my thoughts were me. I wasn't a meditator at this point. Um, you know, it was life in the fast lane. That was the thing. That's everything I'd done up until that point was just go, 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 then crash and burn on a holiday, come back and start again. And um, so I was trying to unpack my thoughts. And the medication, I think, just allowed me to do that work. And ultimately, that time I got back on track. My doctor was was reluctant, actually, because it had taken time, I hadn't had to have specialist care at this point um, to, for me to have another child because he felt that 
and this, you know, this is obviously true, that the lack of sleep um, was having a big part and that if I had another child, the hormonal impact and the lack of sleep that came with it, because all of, all of mine had really terrible reflux as babies mm-hmm. and um, it, they really didn't sleep. And so I wasn't getting much sleep. So he kind of said to me, if you really, I, want, I knew I wanted another child. And I just, I'm the sort of person who's generally when I'm like, I am normally so positive that I was just like, it's not going to happen again. I've dealt with it now. It's gone. Um, and so he was like, well, at least get a maternity nurse to make sure that you are having sleep. Mm-hmm. So I then, I, I said, I, I then basically um, decided and unfortunate, well, it's not unfortunate. This is good news, but I fell pregnant with my daughter very quickly after that process. Mm-hmm. And that pregnancy was amazing. I I felt well with, I felt very bad morning sickness, but I didn't feel any kind of depression. I was really happy. I got a maternity nurse to help me afterwards and I thought everything's going to be fine. That third time was just too much. It, it happened way faster. I do think there's a hormonal basis for this because it triggered every time of the birth of my child. Mm-hmm. But this time I fell so hard and so fast. And it took way, way more than ever before to come back. So I I needed medication. The medications they'd used before didn't work. They then mm-hmm. tried different medications. I did all of the therapy again. It was a, a big dark hole. And eventually um, I then got referred to the Priory Hospital under the care of a psychiatrist who was helping me. And he was transitioning me onto other medication I was on medication morning and night on bipolar, pretty strong bipolar medication, which was making me exhausted and very sort of spaced out. And in that transition process, this was about two years on when my youngest was now two, um, we went to have some time away just down to Cornwall as a family. My kids got a cough. Um, They were pretty poorly with it. It was like a flu. Um, And my husband got it and I seemed okay. But in my mind all the time, as they were changing medications, you experience even greater depression again because there's withdrawals and things. And Mm -hmm. I just was having these suicidal thoughts again. So it was well beyond postnatal by this point because it was two years on. And um, basically, um, I then did become sick with it, obviously with the background of, of respiratory infections. And then this infection just started to take hold. And... Initially, then um, I was diagnosed with pneumonia and they ran some chest X-rays and they discovered that I they, things didn't look great on the X-ray. So they were trying to work out whether to keep me at home or to treat me in the hospital. But they thought I had something called bronchiectasis. So I was referred to a consultant who called me and said, can you come to the hospital urgently? Um, I need to I need to see you today. So I went to the hospital and um he kept talking about lymph glands and saying to me, you know, and I was like, what's this bronchiectasis? And he was like, I'll get to that. Can you see your lymph glands? They're so big there. And I was having these raging fevers. So I knew I was mm-hmm. ill and they, they'd said I had pneumonia. I was on antibiotics and I was, had about three different courses. Nothing was working. And I said to him, why do we keep talking about my lymph glands? <laughs> like I've got pneumonia. Like, why do we keep talking about this? And I said, it's just, it's like you think I've got lung cancer or something. And then he just sort of paused and he was like, well, it's, it's hard to say that you haven't we need to, without a CT scan. So mm-hmm. I was like, whoa, like, how does this happen? I'm not a smoker. Like, what, what is going on? Mm-hmm. Um, fortunately, he, um, it was in a private hospital. He, uh, the CT scan was done then and there. And I kind of walked back into his office and he was like, it's worse than I thought. 
And I was like, wow, like life is just changing so fast. And I mm-hmm. said, what do you mean it's worth it worse than I thought? You know, have I ever got lung cancer? And he said, no, but you have got viral and bacterial pneumonia and it's now all over both lungs and that lungs. And that's why your lymph glands are so big. So we're going to have to transfer you now to the general hospital by ambulance because, you know, you, you may need to even be intubated. Wow. And it was just all happening so fast. And I was like, whoa. And um, I said, I, I basically refused and said, I just, I can't sleep at home. I've got three young children. Please, can you just let me stay here for a few days in the private hospital? So he agreed mm-hmm. to make arrangements on the basis that I they would see how things went because it just was taking hold so fast, they weren't sure. And then I think my body at that point just started to, to, to give up, right? I was just, the moment I was then in bed, I could rest. And they took some bloods and they said, you know, you're neutropenic. We're really going to just rely on antibiotics here because your white blood cell count is so low. Um, and I was on oxygen and nebulizers and all these things. I was on a drip. Wow. And it was all tumbling so fast. And it was ironic because I had wanted so much to end my life. And, and then it seemed like things were going that way. And I think when you have a really high fever, and this is really what got me, it was the entry point into meditation. I think you kind of almost become quite lucid in mm-hmm. your thinking. And that was just a segue. And I felt this tremendous sense of peace. And I was thinking, and I, I the, the, the self-loathing just fell away. It was just me. You know, there I was. I tried to run away from myself. And wherever I want, went, there I was. And now I was in hospital and I couldn't run anywhere because I'm in bed. So I had to be with just me. And it was like a magical moment. It sounds really woo-woo, but I just thought, I really want to be a part of my children's lives. I really mm-hmm. want to see them grow up. And I really want to be there. I want to be a mum to them. And within, this is the thing about health, right? Is the mind and body connection. Within 24 hours of me making that decision, or 48 hours, my blood started to change. My white mm-hmm. blood cell count improved. My immune system got stronger. And the antibiotics started to work. And I was saved ever having to have that that extra intubation. It was like amazing. And then that changed my life. When I came out of hospital, I was like, right, I, I'm going to find out how to be healthy. Like, this is it. And mm-hmm. initially, it was a journey of, it was just a journey for me. How can I get really, really healthy, mind and body, the two? I knew they had to be both. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. And so uh, that journey... <laughs> because you know first off thank you again for sharing everything that's incredible what you've been through and how you've gone through it now you leave the hospital and at this point you're like hey i want to get healthy if i look if i plug the word health into google right now i'm going to get 10,000 different opinions as you know where did you start and take us through just sort of how that journey arrived at you now helping people? It's the holiday season and right now I'm staring at this beautiful green light. This beautiful green light emits frequency that protects me from EMF, of course 5G being one of those. It helps structure my water and it just overall leaves me feeling great when it's plugged in. I have it sitting in my office and I must say, when it's plugged in, I feel more energized, more productive, and just ready to kick ass. So what am I talking about? I'm talking about the Soma Vedic and I have the Medic Green Ultra here sitting on my bookcase and I'm staring at it right now and it's beautiful. But again, it gives me energy and that's what I care about. So if you want yours, head on over to somavedic.com, that's S-O-M-A-V-E. 
D-I-C.com and use the code BOOMER to get a nice, sweet discount. Back to the show. So the first thing I think was when I got home was thinking I've really got to take charge of my mind. I've got to like do this work. And I was transitioning onto these medications, which actually then began to work. They were strong. I was tired, but Mm -hmm. I was getting a more stable mood. So I really dived deep into, first of all, looking mentally like and doing the homework. Like what, when I would see a therapist, like how your thoughts become things. So Mm -hmm. what does that thought mean? And what are automatic thoughts? And how can I is there a different point of view? So I would really work hard on my mind. Um, and on at the, the, the first point there was as well was mindfulness. I found meditation difficult. And then I transitioned from there to meditation. Mm-hmm. Um, I then like, I went to see a functional medicine doctor. I'd lost a ton of weight. Um, mm. I didn't have loads of weight to lose. And um, he was like, you will have lost so much bacteria. You know, you've had so much antibiotics so we were working I got on to some adaptogenic herbs which just mm-hmm. helped me um really really helped me some um different supplements to support me and then just started to try I didn't have a massive appetite to eat as nutritiously as I could um I was going back then the hospital I was due six weeks later to go and see what the damage was to my lungs and then unfortunately, I got another chest infection, so they couldn't do that. So I then had another set of antibiotics, but this time it wasn't so bad. It was manageable. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think as often is the way when you try to get back up, you kind of get beaten down first. Yeah. And then you get back up again, right? You just keep mm-hmm. getting back up. Three um, steps forward, two steps back kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And then... Um, And then the first thing I did was I started Googling, as you say, well, how can I get healthy? And then the first thing I came across, the first course I ever did was with the Institute of Integrative Nutrition. Mm -hmm. And that just blew my mind because I remember watching Joshua Rosenthal, the founder of that organization, talking about things that had never occurred to me, like when you're cooking food, put love in it because the energy is being transferred to the food. And I was suddenly like marrying the two that it was, you know, there I was, I was still separating everything, putting an effort into my mind separately with the psychotherapists and and the treatment plan. And then I was basically working on eating really nutritious food. And then I started to get into this whole world of energy and like how that, how the physical could affect the non-physical and how those two worlds came together and was just reading and reading and reading lots of books, did that course I was like, wow, there was so much. I remember at the end, um, the last module, I think, was delivered by Deepak Chopra. And his mm-hmm. presentation just just blew my mind. I then read The Seven Spiritual Laws of Success, which for anyone listening, it's a tiny book, but a very powerful book. Um, and just kept reading everything from nutrition to mindset to spiritual books. And then I then was like, well, I'm really interested in nutrition. So I did a course in nutritional therapy kind of dive deeper again, just, and always improving my life. And then I did Mm -hmm. some personal training qualifications because I was like, I want to understand, like, can you push yourself too far? You know, is exercise too much? Had I been over-exercising? So I did all of that, brought that piece together. Then I did some training um, with Ben Greenfield and the Keon and just, he's very much mind, body and spirit, the whole thing Mm -hmm. together. So that was, he was a wonderful mentor. And 
yeah, I just started then, you know, I was working with clients, started diving into the world of genetics, looking at epigenetics. I'd had a little bit of experience because before I'd had the children, I was diagnosed with PCOS and insulin resistance. So I was put on Mm -hmm. metformin. So I'd kind of already had a little bit of experimentation as a lawyer of like adjusting my diet to a low carb diet because metformin for me, I know it's a wonderful drug for many people for kind of longevity. It didn't work. It was actually like, it gave me such horrendous digestive issues yeah, I, couldn't I was gonna even say eat. gastrointestinal yeah. distresses so did you switch to berberine or did you just keep um at the time through? i didn't i just kind of went on a lower carb diet and yeah. i basically uh, like i had lots of surgery well one set of surgery that basically removed all the pcos and endometriosis and mm-hmm. after that i was very lucky i fell pregnant very quickly with my kids and i've mm-hmm. always followed a kind of paleo low carby style diet since and that's kept it at bay um, so I'd had that little bit of experience and then I was just like, wow, that's like, I'm changing my genetic expression. Cause it, like there's a really strong family history of diabetes. And I was like mm-hmm. this simple fix. So then I got into that, did some training on it and I was working with clients and then getting results. And I was like, actually, do you know what? Maybe I could turn this experience into something different. Maybe I could actually, maybe it's happened to me so I can help others as much as mm-hmm. I can. Um, I wasn't ready to share what we've talked about. I'm going to be honest. It's It's been quite difficult to share that for, for a very long time because I couldn't ever talk about it. I remember sometimes mums on the school run, you know, they'd say to my friends, I feel like she just ignores me or walks past me. And it, that was never my intention. It was so hard just like sounds crazy from running multinational deals to finding it so difficult to face anybody on the school run. Yeah. But that's where I'd got to. And I just was fighting this very secret battle, but I wanted it to be a secret. I didn't want, I didn't ever want anyone's sympathy for it. It was my thing that I just had to get through and I Mm -hmm. was going to come out of it. Um, But it was a long process. And, you know, my, now I've come the other side of it. I have not taken any medication in, I think, 14 months. I was told wow. that, which for me is a big thing because I was told by the, the the consultant psychiatrist that there was I should be on it for the rest of my life because it was wow. very dangerous for me to come off it. And it took me a long time to do it. It was a very gradual process. Um, but now I'm happy to say that, yeah, I, I don't struggle with that anymore. And if, if I, be, my belief is now is it, it's hard cause it's painful when I talk about it, but if it could help somebody in some small way, yeah. um, then, then I would feel grateful for it having happened if it can help someone else by me sharing it. It's, um, and I'm grateful for you sharing it because there's not that many people first that get on the other side of it and are able to stop the medication. But to, um, to another point it is, you know, there's not that many people that want to talk about it. Cause like you said, a lot of people perceive this as their own battle and, you know, it's through people like yourself that we now realize that it's not just you. It's, sorry. It's not just your own battle. It's a battle that other people can help you with. Mm. And so thank you for sharing. Pleasure. So Angela, you're now working with some elite performers and, you know, people with a time constraint, if you will, what would you say are commonalities among this group in terms of things you, you just kind of look back or maybe even looking back on your own career and say like, uh, you should do this younger Angela, or, uh, you know, the commonalities that you see among this professional group. 
do you know, it is this, this kind of free sense to dispense with sleep, which I think is so dangerous. <laughs> it's like, yeah. do you know, it's like, I'm busy, I've got so much to do, then you're always layering in. Yeah. So for, as we said, in your 20s, you can get away with stuff. And then suddenly mm-hmm. in your 30s, you start adding more things into the mix. And now you've got maybe a couple of kids, plus you're working. And then you just keep adding more, then they become teenagers, like one of mine is now, and there's more challenges. And sleep is the first thing that people let go of, because it's almost like, well, I don't have time. So I can just sort of skimp on that. And actually, what I try and do is encourage people, because really, it's it affects your mental and physical health in such a profound way. But mm-hmm. importantly, it also affects your productivity, affects your creativity. And there are some hacks that I use when I'm underslept, for sure. And I'm not saying that I'm perfect every night, Mm -hmm. but I really massively prioritize and encourage other people to get their sleep right first because I believe it's the foundation. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about those hacks because I know that there are people listening to this and just looking at like the statistics of it, right? Uh, The United States, which is where a lot of the the listener base here is, has something like an average of less than six hours a night for the whole population. Now, those surveys may be flawed, but what are some of the things that people can do if obviously they want to get seven to eight hours every night, but if you don't, what what can we do? So I think, so in terms of which question first, in terms of how can they enhance their sleep first or how can yeah. they, yeah. So I guess... The biggest thing for me, I think, is in, in, that I see in people that can't sleep is they're always on. And I think this is so common in the executive and the corporate clients and the entrepreneurs mm-hmm. I see. They just can't switch off because there's always something going on. And it's so ready, right? It's there on your phone all of the time. But they're not, they're underestimating how much of an impact that is having on their brain's ability to wind down and actually get that rest. So sometimes mm-hmm. then they'll fall asleep and they're absolutely exhausted but they wake up in the middle of the night. So bookending the day is, it doesn't really matter when you do it. Ideally, you need to create some distance and it isn't always possible if you're working on something that's going through, you know, like Mm -hmm. when I'm working with some clients and they've got private equity deals that they're funding, um, it isn't, it's, it's difficult. And maybe that window comes down. It's not like, two, three hours, but it's even just 15 minutes or half an hour, but to bookend it so that everything, there's a transition, there's a, there's a gear change between you finishing work and what you're doing and everything you're focusing on and now getting ready for sleep. I would say that's a really important thing and getting that stuff out of your head onto a piece of paper or the notes on your phone can make a massive difference. Even setting an alarm to remind you that you've got to do something the next day because people carry stuff in their head and they don't realize how much that's impacting their sleep. And then Mm -hmm. the second thing is taking the pressure off yourself because the more that you decide that you need to now sleep, the less likely you are. I think that sleep is like falling in love, right? It just kind of comes upon us. You can't go out looking for love and you can't go to bed trying to sleep, right? Mm -hmm. Just like as well, you can't try to have a baby, right? You just will fall pregnant um, Mm -hmm. when it sort of happens. And so with sleep, I say, I, I find that once you take that pressure off, but you've given yourself the opportunity to rest, often you'll have a deeper sleep. And if you remind yourself that either way, your body is now now resting 
it will get some regeneration and rest, even if you're not sleeping. But to do that, it has to feel safe. And so this is a really common one with travel and people aren't traveling as much is you go into a hotel room and it feels unsafe. It's an unfamiliar environment. You mm-hmm. haven't quite realized it's unsafe, but you're just very switched on and your mind switched on to what's going on. Even just having a sleep mask and blocking out like the smoke detector and the other lights that are in the room, because light, as you know, has a, such a massive impact, mm-hmm. suddenly makes you feel like you're in your cave and you're safe. Um yeah. And I like the Manta sleep mask for that because it's so comfortable, isn't it? With the pockets yeah, I have the, and the... I have the weighted one. It's like, oh, it's wow. perfect. Oh, no, I haven't yeah. tried the weighted one. I just love the fact you can open your eyes because of that padding that's around mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, for me, you know, makes a, a big difference. But I think once you start with anything in life, once you take the pressure off, then actually things get easier. And then obviously there are various biohacks and light is a massive one. So wearing mm-hmm. blue blockers and things like that and using apps on your computer which your listeners they're an educated audience so they probably have heard you talk about before um Mm -hmm. but i think then it's like well when i'm underslept there's two things if i'm underslept what can i do and then without just relying on caffeine and pushing those adrenals too hard and then also how can i be so healthy that maybe i don't need as much sleep Mm-hmm. as I would do if I was less healthy. Does that make sense? So like yeah, sense. how can you make sure you're detoxifying correctly, make sure those pathways are working? How can you like limit what's coming in in terms of toxins and pesticides? How can you support yourself nutritionally? How can you make sure you've got the right nutrients to actually enhance melatonin production and sleep as well? Mm-hmm. Um, and how can you get really physically and mentally healthy that your body is more inclined to sleep, but also needs less sleep. And then Mm -hmm. I also look at meditation. And I think we talked about this actually when you came on my show, which was really fun, is that when you're you're underslept, actually a 15-minute meditation can you put you into a sense of deep rest that Mm -hmm. can revive you in a way for longer than caffeine and actually rest your body. Mm -hmm. Amazing. Those are are amazing tips, Angela. Let's... Talk a little bit more about um, just sort of when somebody comes into work with you or you go to work with them, what's that experience like? How do you start working with this audience? Because this audience, and I I work with a lot of these individuals as well, oftentimes uh, is not open to the idea of either them being wrong or them needing to change something. Uh, What Take me through just sort of how you you work with these individuals in terms of how to open them up so that they're able to to talk a little bit more freely. So I find that I think it's funny because I was chatting about this with uh, Emily Fletcher, who founded Ziva Meditation a Mm -hmm. few weeks back on the podcast, is actually coming at it from the performance angle is the easiest way in a way to get those Mm -hmm. individuals to open up because they buy into the fact that this might improve or will improve their performance. So it's kind of like, you know, like she was saying how meditation for performance, that's amazing. But then actually when they get into it, they realize it's way more spiritual and how it's affecting their creativity as well. But there's that spiritual dimension that's more accessible. And so I think we, I always start with clients, well, where are you now? Where do you want to get to? And how can we bridge that gap and enhance your performance? And when they realize that it's going to have a dramatic impact, then they're much more open to do it. And I think 
like anyone, right, the most accessible things are often the things that you can take. So a supplement or a set of blue light blocking glasses and you can start small and then you start to really like look at their nutrition their sleep and you slowly layer each upon layer and build from there that's what I Mm -hmm. find I don't know about you I mean very similar right like uh, a lot of this crowd has blocks and obstacles in the way in terms of like sleep stress and nutrition and stress being the one that they tend to not want to acknowledge the most, Mm -hmm. uh, which is interesting in itself, but it's always about starting somewhere with that low hanging fruit. And for me, I found that if you can get the low hanging fruit, right. And they start to succeed, see the success and how it improves their life. Well, that can be almost addictive in a way mm. and they want to get on board with that. Um, so sure. Angela, you have you have a, a certain way, I believe uh, on your website, there's a certain plan by which you work with people. Can you just give us sort of the high level overview of how that plan works? Yeah, in terms, so I kind of work with people, I guess, in a range of ways. So some mm-hmm. people I will work with, one-to-one if they feel like they want that extra um, kind of very bio-individual coaching. And then um, I also, because I know that not everybody has um, has the time or maybe even has the budget for kind of one-to-one coaching. So I mm-hmm. also run programs where I've put my methodology basically into a kind of 90-day blueprint for mm-hmm. people to optimize their body composition, their energy, and that's all based around the genetics as well. So it teaches them. It's like a really good entry point into biohacking because it teaches them. And I found it's interesting because coming back to your other point there, on, I find that most individuals really actually like data. Like they mm-hmm. enjoy seeing the metrics. I don't know if you find this. And so oh, yeah. then they realize the importance of it. It's like a lot of people can't, you know, they don't necessarily want to do less exercise because they're really enjoying it. But then when they see their heart rate variability and they find actually, yeah, maybe I am kind of hammering myself a bit too hard on too consistent of basis. If I step back a little bit or they've got abdominal fat that they just can't seem to shift and they start to see the connection that actually that's stress and that's really mucking around with my blood sugar, regardless of what I'm eating, the cortisol's mm-hmm. having an effect when I dial things back and now that actually starts to fall off, they can feel that result. So, um, yeah, as I say, I do have a, um, a 90 day program that people can do that teaches them some of this and how to do it and how to understand key parts of their body so that they can start to build a greater compliance with themselves. And it's just, you know, certain things that can help them and give them like the fast track to success and just remove some of the guesswork. And as part of that, I always involve some group coaching so that people can come on to and have questions on a Zoom call. They're kept pretty small and they can mm-hmm. get that that coaching alongside. And then if people want one-to-one as well, I do that. And then obviously the corporate presentations as well. Amazing. Angela, I have a few final questions for you. And these are, you can think of these as kind of fun, rapid fire questions, if it's okay. Okay. Um, What do you think, or what excites you most about the health world right now? Empowering people. I always say empowering, I like to empower people to become the CEO of their health. And I think it is a really empowering time to be in. I know this year, 
we've had a really tough year with COVID and people have feel there's been a lot of fear that's been created as a result of that. But in reality, the market is moving so fast and there's so much coming out in that's so much more affordable than it ever was before to yeah. track and test and self-quantify and then really understand that I think people can really start to take charge of their health. So I think it's really exciting times. Amazing. Top trick for enhancing focus. I think basically avoiding carbohydrates until later in the day. Get your, first, <laughs> get your best work done before you start eating carbs, if mm-hmm. you're going to eat them at all. Mm-hmm. Um, what is the book that has most impacted your life? Hmm. There have been a few. So it's funny, I mentioned... The seven spiritual laws success, that's one. The other one Mm -hmm. is Breaking the Habit of Being Yourself by Dr. Joe Dispenza. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, there's been a few. Um, I've read read so many books. It's hard to like take one out and say. I know, right? I mean, (laughs) another one that's really impacted me in a big way recently because I discovered that I do carry the APOE4 gene, one copy, is mm-hmm. The End of Alzheimer's by Dr. Dale Bredesen. That's just a mm-hmm. hugely empowering book about how to how to always kind of keep your cognition. Um, yeah. And just for people listening, the APO4 gene, uh, or the, the allele that you're yes. talking about. Um, so I guess the, if you're only one, so you're three, four. Yeah. Um, or two, four. I don't actually know. Um, but so if you're three, four, what does that exactly imply? So basically most people are APO33 and that Mm -hmm. gives them about a 9% risk of ever getting it. So Alzheimer's, unfortunately, most things are, well, everything is apart from things like, um, things like Down syndrome would be one example, right? It's in the epigenetics and it's environmental and it still is with Alzheimer's. It's just that there is a strong genetic component to it. So if Mm -hmm. you have two copies of APOE3, and your risk is about 9%. If you carry one, three and one, four, it goes up to about 30%. And then if it's two copies of APOE4, it's 50% plus. So it's mm-hmm. much higher. So what, but I see that as empowering. I see yeah. that as, well, what can I now do to make sure that I really protect? And that comes back, you know, to all the things that you can do and enhancing that lymphatic drainage and things that happen at night to really keep your cognition alert. Mm-hmm. And the saturated fat connection, right? And yeah, as well. A, exactly. Yeah. So maybe so maybe important. no no butter coffee for Angela, I guess. Yeah, I'm not a massive. It's funny, actually. That's one reason I don't drink bulletproof coffee every day, but mm-hmm. I do love butter. Yeah, <laughs> but, yeah, me too, me too. But actually, I'm not that big a fan of it in my coffee. The oiliness for me just doesn't work. I love collagen coffee. Yeah. That's yeah. nice. Cause slightly creamy. I'm just like, I'm such a coffee fanatic that if I throw butter in it, I just feel like I'm ruining the coffee beans. So, Mm. I mean, somebody's going to probably comment on that, that one, but, uh, Angela, where can people find out more about you? This has been so much fun. I'm sure we're going to do it again soon. I'd love to. It's been really fun. Um, thank you. So people can find me at AngelaFosterPerformance.com. Um, I'm also pretty active as you know, on Instagram, which is Angela S Foster or the podcast high performance health podcast. And we'll link to all this in the show notes, Angela, this has been so much fun. Thank you for sharing so much with the audience today. Thanks so much. It's been my absolute pleasure. Being I really enjoyed 
Angela's willingness to open up on today's podcast and discuss what is something that often gets really swiped underneath the rug, which is depression. If you enjoyed the podcast, please share it with a friend. Head on over to YouTube, subscribe, or leave a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. Again, the show notes for this one are decodingsuperhuman.com slash Angela, and I'll see you next week, Superhumans.